The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, my name is Joni Siegel, and this is the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. And this is episode number 223. We are into our fifth year of podcasting, and we hope that we are achieving our goal of offering help and hope to you, our listeners. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could give us a good review, that would be great. We also have a YouTube channel. And if you subscribe to the YouTube YouTube channel and ring the bell, you'll get notified when we put up a new interview. Today's interview is with a gentleman who was referred to as the Ansel Adams of the addiction area when we received an email from his publicist. His name is Michael Blanchard. Now, alcoholism is considered one of the biggest health, public health crises in the United States today, and it really has been for a very long time. We know this because of the statistics and information on alcoholism and addiction that have been collected over the years, showing how alcohol and substance abuse have affected people across genders, ages, and socioeconomic statuses, something that we talk about pretty much every week on the podcast. According to the CDC, six Americans a day die from alcoholism. Michael Blanchard knows all of this firsthand. He nearly became one of those statistics. He was a successful Fortune 500 CEO and family man, but he had a hidden secret, which was alcoholism. It became so severe that it landed him in jail. His marriage was crumbling, and now he has turned his life around. So let's find out what it was like, how he turned his life around, and what he's doing now to stay clean and sober. Michael Blanchard, Ansel Adams of the Recovery Community. I love that. I love that title. (laughs) Thank you for being on the podcast today and being willing to share your story with us. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. I really appreciate you guys inviting me. Awesome. And I love seeing all of the beautiful photographs in the background. We'll have you tell us more about that a little bit later. Sure. So, Michael, tell us how you got started. Um, I think your drug of choice was pretty much just alcohol, or did you do drugs as well? Yeah, I had a I had an idea that I could get off the alcohol by taking Xanax, and I don't oh. need to get how that went. Um, yeah, I can we I can totally imagine. Well, how did you get started on alcohol? How old were you, and what was your you know what was your life like? Sure, I, I would. I, I was not. There are some alcoholics where after the first drink, you're you're off to the races. With me, it took literally about thirty years of practice to get to the point where I was no longer able to manage. And believe it or not, I was a marathon runner, and um, I've run in over fifteen marathons. I was actually pretty good at it. Wow. And I think that was the initial thing. I, I did. Some, I tried to figure myself out later after I sobered up. And so I got my master's in psychology a, a few years ago. And I did some research on marathoners and sports people who get really addicted to the endorphin rush. And it's not all that dissimilar. And as my body started to break down from all the years of running, the ratio of alcohol to, um, to running tipped in favor of, of the alcohol. So instead of, you know, a couple glasses of wine a night, I mean, I remember some runs, I'd go out, run 13 miles in the morning and I'd be dizzy at the end of the run. And so I went into my physician and he said, are you drinking? And I said, ah, just a little bit. And he says, well, how much is a little bit? Well, maybe like four glasses of wine. He says, that's why you're dizzy. You're all dehydrated. You've got to make a decision. 
And, and so it, it kind of ramped up and then, you know, eventually, so, so starting in my mid twenties, um, very light. Uh, and then eventually at the age of say 50 ish is when it came crashing down in a rather dramatic way. Uh, so I, I'm, you know, it took a while to get, you there. know, you know, it's interesting because now I'm, I hope, I hope I'm not stepping on any toes, but you know, they're, they're, um, the premise with alcoholism, um, with a lot of the programs is that if you are an alcoholic, you can never have just one drink, but you kind of were sort of able to do that for a long time until you couldn't do that anymore. So really, it's just, really, yeah, it's different. I believe there's, there's a line that you step, there's a point and I, you know, and, and again, you know, I realized in my master's program that we know almost nothing, you know, we, we, we presuppose different theories of alcoholism and so on. But I really do believe there's a point where, and it may take months to get there. There's a line. Once you step over, you can never go back. Interesting. And, 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 you know, it, one of the things that bothered me, there was, you may have heard of the, the study on Rat Park. Uh, mm -hmm. Rat Park was this, and it made it on a TED talk and it created a buzz in, in, in some parts of the addiction world that your state of happiness is what governs whether you're going to continue to drink or not, because they did an experiment with rats who were kept in cages versus rats who were, who were left to frolic. And the frolicking rats did not prefer the heroin laced water over regular water whereas the cage rats really wanted the heroin and so the the researchers then made the assumption that we don't have to worry about being alcoholics as long as we're happy we have happy lives well my point is is I, i've crossed the line if you put me in the caribbean with all the money i want and everything that i could possibly need to be joyful one drink of wine and i'm i'm probably dead in two weeks and okay. so you know so that's kind of that layout. <laughs> well, and it's, it's interesting what you say. Um, I'm, I'm not a trained psychologist, but one thing I, I have learned over the four years of doing this podcast is that, you know, drugs or alcohol is not really the problem. It's the solution to the problem. And that kind of parallels with what you're saying is like, if someone is drinking because they're stressed, well, maybe a better way to go is to find out what is stressing them out and yeah. address that because obviously alcohol is some sort of a solution to being stressed. And I think so often when very young people start drinking or experimenting with drugs, it's because, you know, they have a self self-esteem issue or they're bullied or parents got divorced. So anyway, it kind of parallels what you're saying. Um, and that's well, interesting. Yeah, you're right, because there is there's that side of it, right, where you're stressed and you're drinking too much. Yeah, you've got to figure out what the stressors are. And, and even with me now, I've been sober almost 11 years. If I if I if I have life issues going on, I mean, that threatens the sobriety if you don't deal with it. And, but but I but I, I just didn't want alcoholics and addicts to think that once you're you know, once you've gone past this, whatever being diagnosed as an alcoholic or an addict, that it's dangerous, I think, to think that just because we're happy that we suddenly erase the fact that we're going to be off to the races if we take that next drink. So there's a fine line, but you, you're right. You've got to get at the root cause of what's what's influencing your need to drink or use drugs in the first place. You know? Exactly. Okay, yeah. so let's go back to your life. And now you're running marathons. At that point, did you have a family? Did you have 
children and and how did your alcoholism then progress and how did it affect that yeah well initially i had a son one he was only one year one years old and i and i got divorced um and when i got divorced i started drinking much heavier and um and then i was lost as a lost soul not having any idea what to do so i, I became a businessman and my whole goal in life was to climb the ladder and make more money. I really wanted something different. I, I wanted to play sports and, or anything other than business, but I followed in my father's footsteps because that's the only path that I knew. And that path, I, just my competitive instinct said, okay, you don't really like what you're doing, but be really good at it <laughs> and make a lot of money at it. <laughs> so put your competition into the, into the workplace. And I rose right up through the ranks, you know, I vice president, all that sort of stuff, but it, but leaving along the way, um, two marriages and, you know, my kids were still close. I've got a, um, a son and a daughter they're they're you know she's in her 20s he's in his 30s and and we've come full circle and we're doing really well but that endless uh climb but it, i was also really i am amazingly functional and there were only a few occasions where i think people could see that i was really struggling though though we all think that right and everybody knows but i did a, a pretty masterful job of hiding it uh without being you know drop dead drunk and you know falling in the gutter and having your family picking you up and stuff like that it wasn't that perceptible i don't think interesting uh, yeah so and okay go ahead sorry no i was just saying that that you know so it's nothing really dramatic over the years there were there were times where then i started drinking more and um my son was in the car and um, I got pulled over for drunk driving and got arrested. And that was probably 10 years before um, the final collapse where I was arrested three times in three months for drunk driving. Wow. Uh, so, I, so I had one on my record back then. It horrified the family, horrified me. And I sort of- How old was your son at the time? He was only around seven or eight years old, oh. risking his, his life and everything else, right? So it was, it just, uh, you know, and then lots of years passed by and, you know, you think you got it under control. You convince yourself that, you know, that that was just a blip on the radar and now I'm good. I can manage it. I'm in control and it's not going to happen again. And, uh, and I did a good job with it though. There were car accidents. Um, I, I, to I totaled a rental car going up the ramp at an airport. And I convinced the, the police officer who didn't smell the alcohol on my breath that I dropped my cell phone and I lost control of the car. Um, there were two other near misses. <clears throat> and I'm just so grateful, really grateful that I didn't hurt somebody else in this progression. I can't even imagine someone who, who you know, hurt another family because of, of driving under the influence. Um, right. So, you know, it just kind of progressed along. And, and then eventually when I hit 50 years old, um, the need for the vodka was incredible. And, uh, but I was tortured because I knew I was in trouble and mm -hmm. I poured more vodka down the sink than I consumed by a landslide. And I would swear to never drink again. And um, I was just a lost person at that point. And then I started getting into fights with my third wife at, and and she lived in Boston and and um, I was worried about losing her and 
I would, we'd get in the car, I'd get in the car in Maine where I lived and I would drive south to try to make up for the fights and whatever. But of course I would guzzle vodka and, uh, and head down. And I just didn't think, you know, it's a short trip. I, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking there's no, there was no thought. It was pain. I was in real severe pain and I just wanted it to stop. And, um, on three occasions in three months, I was pulled over for speeding, uh, pulled over for drunk driving without having an obvious offense such as speeding or a lane violation or except for the, you know, in, in the end, I believe that was God sending angels <laughs> mm-hmm. to get me off the road before I either killed myself or someone else. Um, and then the last arrest, I told you about the Xanax. Right. The theory was, is the Xanax was going to keep me whatever while the alcohol wore off. And I put that to bed and then I would easily stop the Xanax. But I started taking both in the last arrest. I, um, I was pulled over. Apparently, um, I fell asleep at the wheel of the car off an exit ramp on the highway and, and state police came to the car. And when they tried to get me out, I was passed out. I slammed on the accelerator and took off on them. Oh, my. And ran over a bunch of street signs. And um, all I remember was waking up in the emergency room with, with numb wrists from the handcuffs and everything. And um, that was wow. the end of my journey. That was the wow. beginning of a new journey. Right. Now, tell me again, how did, how did the Xanax come about? Was that prescribed for you? No, the internet, Canadian pharmacy. Ah. Uh, so you... <laughs> self-medicated to get off the alcohol. Yeah, that was the theory. (laughs) Okay. All right. I wouldn't recommend it. No, that's what we call substituting one drug for another. And it just never works. Okay. So you're in the, you're in the emergency room, you've got the handcuffs on. I'm assuming that was kind of your point of no return that you realized you had to do something. One more step. And after, after that, um, there was still 90 Xanax left uh, and I had to let them go to waste. Didn't want to, I didn't want to be here anymore. Mm. And I decided that I didn't, I wanted to just end it by drip, taking all 90 and the vodka at the same time. And when I was in that process, I was discovered and I was sent to a psychiatric hospital for two weeks to try to get me out of this suicidal ideation. You can imagine with, I was the chief operating officer of a company. I had a thousand employees when this was going on and I'd only been at that company for six months and I couldn't see a way out of this. I was going to jail. I was done and I just didn't want to be here anymore. And so, you know, it's, that's a bottom that, you know, I I don't claim to have the top five, you know, the the top bottoms. And if we were going to rank in a company (laughs) who sunk below us, but it was pretty low and I, I couldn't stop. And I was, it wasn't until the three people pulled me over that, that the, the, the game ended. And, um, and then there was a moment when hope was instilled, instilled in my heart. And what was that moment? How did that happen? So I was in the psychiatric hospital and it was, it was just a blur. I mean, when you're in a place where you, you want to, you don't want to be here, you want to die. You just want it to be over with. 
that everything just seems surreal around you. A guitar player coming in on the weekend playing guitar, and somehow you could he he meant something to you, and I don't know, it meant something to me, and I don't. It took me a while to figure that out. But the physician who was the medical director at, and this was in the same health system that I was a chief operating officer of one division. He was the medical director of the psychiatric hospital. And oh. he, he, he came in my room and he knew that I was the COO. And he looked and he talked at me for a while. And he looked at me and he said, I was you. Mm. And I even get emotional thinking about it, but yeah. He, he, he said, I looked at him. I said, what? He said, I once had a blood alcohol of 600 and I was on life support. I was going to say, doesn't that kill you? How could, how, could, yeah. how, wow. And he was, he was at main medical center where I was part of that system. So he was a physician within the same place. He ended up going on life support and um, he managed to get to a three month rehab after that all passed and he made it back. And, you know, it's not like I, there was so much against me at that point. It wasn't like, you know, God, you know, and lights and everything was, you know, but it changed me in just, he, he was, he was authentic Mm -hmm. and it, and that authentic, the being authentic, it just changed my energy in a small way. And I, I remember saying, like, after we left the room, I said, if he ever, if I ever make it back from this. I'm going to be authentic to trying to help somebody else out in the same way that he helped me. And it was, that was the moment when, you know, I didn't want to just go get back out again and end it. And it, it kept me in the game and, and he did it. He, he went to the health system, to the CEO of the entire health system. And even though I had only been there six months, he said, if we send him to this rehab in Atlanta, it's actually Talbot Recovery Campus in Atlanta. He said, I think we can save him and we should give him a chance. And they listened wow. and they didn't fire me. Wow. What is the chance? And then the insurance covered my stay. Wow. And so I, and then Talbot, because it was a three month rehab, you know, three month rehabs are so important. And it's like, I wish I could scream from the rooftops, please make them all three months because there's a process that instills hope back in your heart and that you're not a bad person. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name or you can email us at the addiction podcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, the addiction podcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount. Or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby.
And 28 days is not going to do it for probably 90% of people. And the fact that insurance only pays for 28 days is why people get into the revolving door of a 28-day program. And it's criminal in my viewpoint. Yeah. And I think they misunderstand why. I think, I think the, because in a, in a three-month rehab, I failed at two, at two um, other rehabs at 30 days or 28 days. But I think what I learned is that there's a period in the beginning, say the first 30 days where you're, you're, you're learning to live in the absence of, of the drug. You're also doing some deep inner soul work. And then in the second two months, you're furthering that effort. But in the third month is when you become a mentor for new people coming into the program. And that is the moment that I started having self-worth again. I was, I was going to the airport and they were bringing new patients or clients up the escalator physicians. It was a, they were pilot airline pilots. It was a high end rehab that had physicians and others and they, they, and a young adult program too. And these poor, a couple of kids came up and they, and they would have you stay with the new person and their family for the, for the day while they were processing, you know, was taking place to get them admitted and all that. And I sat with three different families and just sat there and I, the stories are, are incredible, but in the end, those people got up in front of the group when I was leaving and graduating. And they said, Michael was the most significant moment in my rehab stay. And I was like shocked. I'm, I was like looking and saying, I didn't do anything. I just mm-hmm. sat there with you on that day you came in. And they said that meant everything. And so me as a person, in that, in, I said, look, I went through a lot, but I've got a lot to give and I'm not an awful person. There's, I, I can, I can take what I've learned. And if I can ever navigate the mounds of legal problems and no license and all of that, I'm going to take this and I can actually help other people that were once as bad off as, as I was. And that you need that in your heart when you leave the rehab, I at agree. Least in my opinion. I agree. You you basically take something that has been an internalization process and externalize it to the point where you're helping other people. We had um, a gentleman on the podcast and he was in prison and his roommate said, you need to come with me. And he ended up going down to the library and basically teaching you know, middle-aged men who are in prison, how to read. And there's that, there is that, you know, there, that um, wanting to help others. And I think that that, I think you're right. I think that's huge. And there's, yeah. And I think that is part of the turning point, I think, for a lot of the people that we've spoken to on the podcast. Michael, how did you get into photography? How did that happen? I I was three years. So I got out in, in, Again, they were, it was a blessing what they did for me. Um, it was tough getting, navigating the first two or three years. I still was doing a job that I didn't really particularly love in the first place, but I also owed them in my heart immensely. And I ended up staying in that job for eight more years, believe it or not. But, and I wow. ended up turning the company around and raising profits and all that. I left really feeling good that they had given me something and I had given them something back. Um, but two to three years in, you know, it's bumpy, right? In your early sobriety, you're going home at night, you know, there's AA meetings, other things, but you know, you're trying to make it through 5 PM to 10 PM at night without drinking. And, you know, it wasn't a very fulfilling life. I was just barely managing. And I ended up going to my wife's, um, 
graduation ceremony. She got her master's degree. And the woman given the speech was trying to implore the graduates to find their passion. That was their number one goal as they graduated. And I was like zoned out for the talk. But I but then she said, I want to give you an example of an alcoholic bipolar businessman who found connection in the editing in uh, taking and editing of photographs. And I still to this day, I, I hated camp. I didn't understand the terminology. I gave up on them. F-stop and all this other crap that they used to talk about turned me off on cameras. And But I listened for just a second. And and I, I still don't even know why. I, I it, but, but I ended up taking that thought. And because I have bipolar disease, and I was finally diagnosed at, at Talbot. And so he sounded like me. And... So I, I went home and I said, I'm going to check this out. I'm going to finally break through my hatred of cameras and the terminology. And I'm going to try to figure it out. And I started renting videos because I work out every day. That's really important to me. Seven days a week, I would get on the elliptical trainer and I would just play a video. This is how a camera set up. I bought, I bought a little cheap camera. And then I started, something happened. When I took the camera, and I went outside in the evening. There's stuff out there. <laughs> Believe it yep. or not. Yep. There's stuff. There's like clouds. There's birds. You know, there's a beach. And then there's also people. And I got so into that I felt like a spiritual connection with an energy that I really couldn't explain. And I didn't really know. I mean, I, I, I knew, I mean, it was a spiritual person. I don't mean to make it sound like, again, the light bulb turned on instantly, but it was a reason to go outside in the evening. And then I wanted to learn more. I wanted to know more. And it got me out of my shell. And, um, and then when I would go home at night, I would edit the photos. And my photos ha- had a very distinctive style. There was, you know, light, lightning bolts from heaven, <laughs> dark <laughs> thunderstorms and whatever. And Eventually, I read about uh, phototherapy, where individuals can kind of peer inside. Photographs are the windows to the soul, and mm-hmm. that you can, you, you, and by the editing process, they actually now use iPads in treatment centers where they give an iPad to the patients and have them go around the facility and outside in the grounds and take pictures and then edit those pictures and then talk in group about what that meant to them and, and why they did what they did. It, it takes away the, you know, the point to the photo instead of right on you. So it's easier to talk to the photo than it is to, you know, from yourself. But, and so it ended up <clears throat> really being a, a magical thing. And then I, you know, of course my ego as an alcoholic recovering alcoholic was, I'm going to post this on Facebook. I think these look pretty good. And so I started posting things and, um, and people started to like them and, mm-hmm. and, you know, so the ego was being fed. So in the beginning, it was just, you know, to try to say, Hey, maybe I'm not so bad at this and maybe I can do mm-hmm. more with, it, you know, yeah. um, I think that's awesome. You know, again, I, I like to run parallels to people we've spoken to before, but we, um, in fact, I'm just about to put up an interview we did with a gentleman who was a punk rock musician and he is a member of a group that uses music to help people in recovery and you know whether it's photography whether it's painting whether it's music you know it's it's aesthetics and I think that it's it's a great path for 
everybody, not just people who are in recovery, but especially people who are in recovery. I think it's, I think it's a great path to take for people. And that's huge. Um, can you, can you, I don't know if it's possible with what you're doing the video on, but can you show us any of your photographs or those ones behind you? Can you yeah, move I it can. around? Okay. I'm gonna, I will go around and, um, okay. I like that. There's some, this is the, and I'm sorry about this, but this is really important to me. I, the gallery was open all weekend, but you can see these are calendars that I just had 2,500 calendars delivered today. And these calendars are every year um, I do uh, the calendar and I sell them. And you can see there's an effort um, this year called On Island, which is to try to change the culture on Martha's Vineyard around substance use. And so the the proceeds of the calendar, I'm I'm hoping to raise $10,000. And that these are the kind of things that keep me going. I like to use my photography to benefit other people. And I uh, love it. Yeah. But I love the, the calendar. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's I've already sold like 2000 of them online and hopefully we'll we'll keep the process going. Okay, but, now how do know, people buy the calendar? If they want to buy it, where do they go? Oh my, they're going to be on Amazon. They're also going to be on my website. Uh I I did a pre-order uh, where I needed to get help cuz the calendars cost like $15,000 and I and I sold almost a thousand calendars on the pre-order before they were even available. And so that's what all this is. I'm going to be shipping these to, and, and, and we have, there's a, I'm in a movie that the Island put together. It's a kind of a unique ex, uh, experiment on how a community surrounded by water uh, can work together with the police and all constituent groups to try to do something really cool to help work together as a family on dealing with the issues of addiction. And, and so they need money. And um, I've raised over $40,000 in the last four years with wow. my calendars and books for, for nonprofits here. I have to do that. Yeah. There's but no Michael. What's your website? Say your website. It you is. Um, it's www, as, as they say, Blanchard photo MV as in Martha's vineyard. Okay. Blanchard photo and there's a tab that says 2021-22 calendar. It's 16 months long, so college kids can hang it in the fall, and then they still get all of 2022. Um, and you know, it, the like back here, you can see um, the Ansel Adams part. This is this is Yosemite. Um, I, I just did a three-week road trip around the country, and these this is Canara Falls here. Um, wow. I, I just loved. Oh my God. I, I went for three weeks in my Jeep around to Death Valley and Yosemite and all those places. And it was an incredible experience. I just felt I, I, it's really the next phase for me. I learned how to write you know, my two books, Fighting for My Life and Through a Sober Lens. What I started doing online is um, I would see the photo and I would say, you know, like this rainbow photo of. Edgar Town White with the rainbow. I don't know if you can tell why you can see it. Yep. But but there are kids um, memorial. There's a children's memorial at the base of the light. And I started giving when I would take a picture of the of the memorial. I started. I knew that I felt the parents were really hurting, and I wanted to give them photos for nothing. And I would send digital photos out on the internet. And I've met so many of the families 
and it, it, it's just been an amazing experience. They, they come in here and, you know, the purpose of this gallery isn't, I mean, I'm almost 65. I, I'm not doing this for the money. I, I have bills. I mean, and I have to pay the bills, but people come in from the words that were attached to the photo and it's moved them in some way. And it's not unusual for someone to walk through the door and, and look at me and just start crying. And then I don't know what to do. I was like, why you don't, you don't cry. Yeah. <laughs> with COVID, I can't hug him anymore because I got a mask uh, on. You can't touch anybody. Yeah. But it's like a meeting place here. If it was just about hanging artwork and sitting here and selling, I would be out of the business in a, in a heartbeat. I'm really not a, the photography is the, is the means, not the end. My stories come from the photographs and um, I've got people from all over the world now that send me notes and, and it's just like you said, in, in just a little while ago, but when, before we got on, I get like a note from somebody about, you know, their son that had helped or their, you know, or an addict or an alcoholic who decided to get help for the first time. He says, if you did that, I looked at that picture and it just opened my heart and I'm going to try to get help. If that's what it's all about, but you have to take a good, see, there are a million amazing photographers in the world. It was kind for recovery today magazine to call me the enthusiasm to the recovery world, but there's a million good photographers in the world. Right. And there's Mm -hmm. a million good writers. I was never trained in photography or how to write, but if you talk from your heart and you match the two together and it brings out a, a, a thing that touches somebody else's heart and makes them feel something and move in a certain way. That's what happens. You know, I don't take pictures and then put poems of dead people, you know, that have passed. Like, you know, <laughs> every once in a while you go into the men's room and there's like a big tree and a little tree and it says determination over it, you know. Um, it's good to attach quotes and things from other people, but I like to write my words together with the photos so that it comes from the heart and it, and hopefully it helps people. So I think that's, I think that's awesome, Michael. And I have to make you say the names of your books again, because you did it so fast and kind of sure. where are the books and where can we get them? And I'm so excited because they've won two awards. The first one is <laughs> um, through, uh, through a sober lens and it's a series of 43 stories. You have one picture, one story, short attention span, picture. You can open the book and just read the story. The other one is Fighting for My Life. And um, both book, Fighting for My Life just won a, um, the gold award from the Independent Book Publishers Association, the Ben Franklin Award for the best art and photography nice. for 2020. And Through a Sober Lens, one most inspirational story and best interior book design. So I was, it's hard to win the Ben Franklin award two years in a row. And for a photographer who I still lack some confidence and I don't mind saying that because I was never professionally trained. I want people to be able to not question their photos. I want them to take their phone, go out and do it and don't say, is this a good photo? It's good if it, if it means something to you and that you can express yourself. You know, so they're both available on Amazon through a sober lens and fighting for my life. Um, Just, just search on Amazon and the little buggers will pop up. Awesome. 
Michael, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I just think that what you're doing, I, I know it's going to inspire people to maybe get out there, maybe be a little bit more creative. Maybe it'll provide, you know, like help for people who are in recovery and give hope to those who need to get into recovery. Um, really, thank you for sharing your story with us. You're welcome. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. What a great interview. What an inspiring interview. You know, I, he just said so many things that I agree with. Um, whatever it takes for you to get passionate about, find something that is, you're more passionate about than the drugs or for a loved one. Maybe see if you can inspire passion in someone. Ultimately, treatment is the answer in the short run, but in the long run, you have to find something that you're passionate about and you have to give your life meaning. No one's going to give it to you. You have to give it to yourself. Thank you for listening. We'll come back again next week with another interview. Please, if you or someone you know needs treatment, do it today. Don't wait. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.